listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. And on tonight's show, we have Julieta Guznir interviewing Rick Tejada Flores, the co-producer of the documentary film Trouble Water, about gold mining and the effects on the land and water across Latino America. We also have the whole La Raza Chronicles team, myself, Brenda Yescas, Julieta Guznir, and Nina Serrano, We'll be playing new and old songs that we enjoy and have kept us motivated in this new year. Stay tuned y no te lo pierdas. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and today we're going to talk about the many effects of gold mining on the land, but most importantly on the people who fight to actually minimize the impact this has on drinking water, on air quality, and on people's everyday ability to survive. We're going to talk about Peru, Honduras, y El Salvador. I'm very lucky to have in the studio with us Rick Tejada Flores, who's a co-producer and editor of Troubled Water which is a beautiful documentary that is in progress. They're actually doing some incredible shooting right now, telling the stories of some people who've stood up around this environmental issue, and we're going to hear about their fight for environmental justice. Rick Terada Flores, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Rick, oftentimes we hear about the fact that you know, it's really dangerous to be an activist. It's dangerous to stand up. It's dangerous to stand up to corporations in Latin America. But the extent of it isn't truly understood. Can you just start off by painting this the larger picture of what is at stake when people actually decide to go against these very powerful industries? Well, you have to understand that when you say being an environmental activist here in the United States, it's very different from saying the same thing in Central America or the Philippines or anywhere outside the United States. Um, here, it's it's not abstract, but it's like uh, we're saving the planet and things are going to happen 20 or 30 years. Um, there, it's we're trying to save our lives right now, and if, you know, and and in trying to save our lives, we're exposed to incredible danger. A human rights group tracked death of environmental activists in 2017, 197 people killed around the world, the majority in Central and Latin America. So we're telling that story specifically focusing on Central and Latin America. And specifically, it, it happens all over with extractive industries, but gold is a particularly dangerous example. Gold is extracted using cyanide, tons of cyanide, and it's extracted using thousands and thousands of gallons of water every minute. Uh, the, the estimate is that in one minute, a large gold mine uses the amount of water someone, a family can use for 30 years. So we're, we're looking at three different examples of this. They're not really three stories, but they're, by showing different stories, we're trying to make the case that this isn't just an isolated incident. It's happening all over the globe. These are multinational corporations that have uh, operations and problems in many countries. So, but we've focused on these three in Salvador, um, Honduras, and Peru. 
That's the voice of Rick Tejada Flores. He's the co-producer and editor for Troubled Water, which is a documentary that is underway right now. It's still in production. And I want you to just dig in deeper and bring us to life, bring some of these examples to life. So you said that one of the places that you all focus on is Peru. You actually focus on Maxima Cunha, who is someone who um, lives in the northern highlands of Peru. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her experience in this fight that's not, like you said, it's not just, oh, we really need to use less plastic bags or, you know, it'd be great if we created a fund to, you know, limit the impact of this specific dam. It's people, native people seeing their lives, livelihood, and their children's futures destroyed. So why don't you start off with Peru? Tell us about some of the things people will be able to see with their own eyes through this shooting. Well, first of all, I, I want to say we're focusing on three characters who are truly remarkable. Um, but they're, these aren't three characters' stories. These are three communities' stories. And it's easier to tell a story if you look at one person. Maxima Acuna lives in the north in an area called Cajamarca, which was one of the original Inca areas where they mined gold. It's now hope for um, the Anacocha mine, which is the biggest open pit mine in Latin America. And the owners of the mine are trying to start a new project uh, where Maxima lives near a sacred lake. And um, Maxima has a little farm that is directly in the middle of the main access to where their um, operation would be built. So she has been under attack for, mm, you know, 10 years at least. Her home has been burned. Her crops have been destroyed. Um, The mine has built a fence around her property. Um, They have brought in the police and the guard who have beaten them. Um, and Maxima is still there. She's a very brave woman. They sued They sued her in, in the Peruvian court and lost. But big corporations don't give up, and they have immense resources. So one of the things Maxima has done is she's responded by filing a suit in Delaware against the corporation and um, Newmont Mining and um, trying to make the case here in the United States that um, that they have been acting in a way that, that des- she deserves. She and the movement deserve compensation. So... The effects of that are that they want to drain the mine or use it as a settling pond for the gold. And um, on one symbolic level, it's a sacred um, mine. Uh, on another symbolic, I mean, a sacred lake. Another one is that communities there, water is, is the key resource everywhere. And gold mining uses this incredible amount of water. So so the result of the uh, of the mine would be to destroy the community's life which is, you know, it's high stakes. Um, so she's been beaten. Her daughter captured this on cell phone. They've been arrested. The roads have been blockaded. Um, and she hasn't given up. So it's, it's quite a remarkable story about humans' ability to persevere. And, and, and the odds are incredible, obviously. And I think also something that this film points to are some of the many ways that we don't even realize the environmental impact is so great of these mining issues. For example, I really didn't understand the connection between cyanide and gold mining. Can you talk to us a little bit about the effect cyanide has had in this community in Peru and other places all over the world? Well, it hasn't happened right here because they've stopped the mine. But as, as I said, cyanide is, a, is the key element in gold extraction. Mines can use tons of cyanide every day, and their, you know, their position in in saying they're responsible is well, we have ways of settling ponds, of treating it so that it purifies the water, and that's fine. But the real issue is human error. Uh, what happens when the mine or the settling pond dam 
breaks. Let me compare it to Chernobyl. Chernobyl happened because of human error. Somebody didn't pull the right switch. And that, you know, you can't stop human error. So there have been, there have been these incidents all over the world, not necessarily, well, when the water escapes one, the, the water supply is completely polluted. But it, it's happened in every case because of poor, constr- you know, of people's actions. Not be, you know, the science may be okay, we don't know. But the result is uh, rivers are gone. The ones that are still there are bright orange um, and, you know, unusable, undrinkable. Um, the, the animals will die. The crops won't grow. So that's, you know, that's a thumbnail of what, what the, the effects are of using cyanide. And other industries use other heavy metals. Um, this, is, this is for open pit mining, but Colorado's an incredibly polluted state because of 19th century mines. There's pollution all over which is very hard to clean up. So that is the impact that we've seen in Peru, but also in other places. Can you take us to El Salvador? Francisco Pineda is the person that you all follow. Like you said, this is not just about Francisco's impact on this fight. This is really about the village itself, the residents of San Isidro, a small village in El Salvador, and their work to try to push back against the Canadian gold company, Pacific Rim. Can you tell us about some of the ways that Francisco Pineda has felt the impact of the mines on his family and on his own health and also how he has worked to try to push back from this uh, multinational company because I think that's the part that's so tricky about this fight. It's not that people are fighting companies that reside in their own country. They're fighting these countries that are larger than larger, maybe the economy is even a similar size to their own country's economy. So tell us a little bit about what Francisco has encountered and also what has been happening in El Salvador. The story in El Salvador with Francisco Pineda has to do with Pacific Rim, a Canadian company. Even before the mine came close to being started, they noticed a, a huge change. Their river started to dry up. They looked into it and found out that Pacific Rim was, was responsible. A movement started, headed by Francisco, to stop the mine. And the result was four people connected with the movement were assassinated. Um, the government claimed they were killed by gangs, but they were tortured and thrown down wells, which is not usually what you see in a gang killing. They have persevered. Uh, they through It became a, a mass movement all through El Salvador. And the result was the Salvadoran government pulled the mining permit eventually, uh, outlawed mineral mining, extractive uh, metallic mining throughout the country. And Pacific Rim, again, a, a large corporation, was to sue uh, the government of El Salvador in the World Bank administrative courts, and they lost. So, but the story isn't over. As, as I said before, they're fine. Uh, Francisco's had to live with armed guards. It's far from over. And also in, in Salvador, the, the history of, of politics in El Salvador goes back, the serious recent history goes back to the civil wars of the 80s, when the country was ruled by a party called Arena, who are still in power, who are the people that ran the death squads, who support the mine. And the people um, who opposed the mine were, here we'd call them red-baited because they were connected with the FMLN, the other political main party, who were the people that ran the guerrilla opposition. So it's it's really um, the latest chapter, not only not only the multinational extractive issue, but it's it's the latest chapter really in in the civil war that was supposed to have ended decades ago. 
And I've read from all the work that you have done on this documentary, Troubled Water, that there's been already, you know, the mining, the activists that you described that were, they said that they were gang involved and that's how they were killed, the people who were anti-mining activists. So it seems like Pineda has a lot of reason to, to fear for his life. And there's a reason he has armed guards 24 hours a day. But it seems like, as you mentioned, and this film shows, that the work that they're doing to fight against the mines has continued it has you know and again it's 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 not clear if it's two steps forward and one step back or the other way around but um the story is not over and it's not over in in el salvador and it's certainly not over in the rest of the world and the dangers that um francisco faces have have again the same consequences everywhere else let's talk for a minute about honduras the leader of the movement there is a native indigenous person, a member of the Lenca people, named Berta Cáceres. And um, unfortunately, Berta has become known throughout the world because she was assassinated because of her work. Um, it, the price is, is incredibly high, and these are brave people. But, but you know, the, their life is at stake. They, you could say they have nothing to lose at this point, and they've decided to fight. They're not going to stop fighting regardless of what happens. So you mentioned Berta Cáceres. So Berta Cáceres is probably the only name that has made it here in terms of getting some recognition in the United States, specifically uh, in terms of some of the environmental, some of the people who have been fighting for human rights and environmental rights in in Latin America. I think part of the reason that her story was so, so powerful for many is the fact that she is um, part of this indigenous community. She is someone who um, has been able to you know, point to Honduran law that um, looks at the vi- the violation of native land you know, in a different context. Like there actually were laws that in theory should have protected Berta Cáceres. Um, can you fill in a little bit more about her story? Because it really is truly a, a powerful one. And I think it's a reason that a lot of people got a sense of how dangerous this work truly is. Well, first of all, the, the nuances of Berta's story was the dam wasn't even there. The process that Berta has been fighting was that the gold mining operations require a lot of water. Require, water requires dams in, in large situations. Uh, a Chinese company, Sin Hydro, was going to build the dam. They contracted with a local um, construction company in Honduras named DESA. And DESA were the people that were actually doing the dirty work. So it's always corporations keep their hands clean. Uh, and Berta, as I said, was a native person. And the water ran through their land, and um, and so the argument that you see in the film is is someone who pro- who supports the dam says, well, the the water's been there for years, and you've never done anything with it. And they reply, we've fed our community, we've watered, you know, we've watered our crops, we've fed our animals. Don't tell us that's not doing anything. Um, and and again, it, it's part of our life, it's part of our tradition. So the interesting thing in uh, in Berta's case is that normally. These companies work through proxies, as as the United States has done in in the third world. So they will try and foment opposition or hire people or, you know, encourage local people to do the dirty work. In this case, in Honduras, after Berta was assassinated, uh, there was a long investigation, and it's not clear how well it was done. But but the result was that eleven people were charged with her murder. Most of them are connected with Dessa, the company that was running the dam, and. After most of them were charged, another gentleman was charged who is a vice president of DESA who was charged with being the intellectual author of the crime. 
which means he planned it and coordinated it and carried it out. That trial was scheduled to begin in Honduras a few weeks ago. It's been postponed, um, but it will happen, and um, I think the story of their involvement will, will come out at that point. So in all these cases, there has been clear pointing to the industries responsible in terms of the violence and the repression and the fear that has been pushed upon all of these different folks working to just make it so their future, so their children and their families can have clean water to drink and be able to farm, etc. So can you tell us about how all these things tie together? Trouble water tells this very large story of a very important issue, but it's it shows it from as a global problem as opposed to just individually impacting one town in one country. Can you tell us how Trouble Water makes these links? Well, it, it makes the links because in each case, um, the companies are, are the communities are facing multinational corporations. And I don't mean to tar them all with the same brush, but it's a problem all the wor- over all the world. It, countries that have no industrial base have extractive resources, and um, the multinationals come in and um, arrange deals with the government. Usually, and sometimes there's money under the table, but but the result is that the, the the wealth of the country is taken away, and it gets very little in return. And so that that's the process. And I don't mean to paint all extractive multinationals with the same brush. In the gold mining industry, they some people some companies are responsible, and they recognize a problem. And they've set up a code of, of responsibility, sort of like what happened in the garment industry in China, uh, where companies agree to monitoring and so forth. But um, the big ones haven't agreed to that. Um, Pacific Rim didn't agree to it. Um, so the argument when you when you try and do these things is the industry will take care of it themselves, will police it themselves. It really doesn't work very well. And so the the whole point about showing three different stories is to make the point that that it's not an isolated case; that it's a pattern of, it's a pattern of, of exploiting companies' res- of countries' resources, and it's also, hopefully, a growing pattern of increasing resistance and you know, finding ways to mobilize public opinion. And you know, that means mobilizing outside of your own country. It means support of the international environmental movement. And all three of these people were recognized with the Goldman Environmental Awards here in in the Bay Area, which is the most important award in the environmental world. So it works, but the struggle Berta was leading worked. Um, She paid the price. We're speaking to Rick Tejada Flores, who is a co-producer and editor of the documentary Troubled Water. This documentary is still in production, and you have an incredible crew working on this. Some of the the most talented folks from the Bay are working in different aspects of it. And it also seems to me a little dangerous because you all are going to Honduras, you're going to El Salvador, and you're going to talk to people about what's happening. And there are things that people know they probably pay a price to talk about. So can you tell us about where you all are at with the filmmaking and perhaps a little bit about who's involved? Well, in terms of who's involved, um, Vicente Franco is a very noted cinematographer is shooting the film. Will Paranello is the other producer, and Will is very experienced in environmental work, and both have traveled all around the world and told these stories in, in many different ways in many different places. Uh, but it's it's dangerous to film this stuff, too. It's not quite as dangerous as to be a participant, and it works both ways, too, But because you can film people, and that causes consequences in their life. So everyone has to be very cons- uh, concerned and careful. Uh, one of the trips Will and 
and Vicente made to Salvador meant that they were surrounded by police and military who were, on one level they said, oh, we're protecting you, but on the other level, when you're surrounded by a truck of army people, people are very scared to talk to you. So um, they're not in the kind of danger that, that Berta was in. I don't, I don't, I hope they wouldn't be assassinated, but, but it's a very, it's, it's a situation where you have to be very, very careful to, uh, to, you know, to survive and to tell the story, to take it out. So there are people listening who want to see this film. They want to support it being made because like most documentaries that are made around issues like this, it is really a community that makes it a reality because it's not just one filmmaker. This isn't uh, you know a fancy company that says, oh, let's just produce this film. It's a lot of people who are donating their time and energy and a lot of people who are fighting to make this a reality. So tell us a little bit about what does it take to make a film like this? Because clearly it's a lot of trips to a lot of countries and, and it's a lot of different shooting and research, etc. And also what is needed to help complete it? Well, first of all, what it takes is when you're concerned about something and it's a world you don't have a connection with, you can't just parachute in and say, I'm here to help you, you know, spill the beans, tell us, you know, cooperate with us. Uh, the first step is making relationships with people. And, and as I said, that these three people that the story is focusing on were Goldman Award recipients. So Will and Vicente spent a lot of time with them. Um, but filmmaking costs money. When you, when you fly to another country, you, you have huge expenses. Um, you have to hire local people on the ground because you still don't know what's going on. So Unfortunately, what happens when you make this kind of film is you spend more time raising money than you do spending it. So uh, we, what we do with this is we've raised it a bit of, a bit at a time. The last big push got us the money to go down and shoot in, in um, Honduras again, and Will's getting ready to go off to Peru to, to shoot some more with Maxima's family. So we're, we always need funds, and we always need support, and... Um, and I, I think the the attraction for this is that by supporting this film, people can make an immediate difference uh, because putting a film like this out really helps these people. It doesn't just, you know, we don't see any difference in our life. It gets them support. It gets them um, money to continue their struggle. And so it, it's not just a meaningless exercise. It It has direct impact, which is what we want to do. So how can people actually be part of this film? Because like you said, it's something that people can see and feel the impact and they can also then watch the film and have access to it if they support it. So how can people how can people support this important documentary? Um, our film works with an organization called the Center for Independent Documentary based on the East Coast. And they've set up a website for us where you can contribute and which will post information uh, the website is documentaries.org slash troubled-water. That's documentaries.org slash troubled-water. Um, a complete description of the project is still up on our Indiegogo page. If you go to Indiegogo and look, at, look for Troubled Water, you'll see that. And we're in the process of setting up our own website. So those are the three best ways to keep track of what's going on. That's the voice of Rick Tejada Flores. We spent this interview talking about Troubled Water. Troubled Water is a documentary that's in production now, talking about the many ways that communities across America Latina are standing up against these multinational industries that are contaminating their land and directly impacting their own health. Muchísimas gracias, Rick, for being here with us. It's been a pleasure, and I, I hope it's been useful and helpful. 
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. On today's program, we want to feature some music that will hopefully give people energy, a time to reflect, and to think about the things that give us strength in these difficult moments. Musica has been an engine in social movements and social change and in re-energizing us to push for a better world. Uh, here, the La Raza Chronicles team is in the studio, and we want to share with you all some songs that we particularly enjoy and that you may too. So we'll start off. I'm going to turn it over to Brenda Yescas. She is here with us. She's been doing a lot of music interviews over the years, and she's going to share with us a couple things that are making her happier, helping her cope at, in this in these times. The first artist I'm going to feature is a local artist by way of Mexico called Francisco y Madero. This is off their most recent album called Amor de Lejos. Uh, the song I picked from this album is called Dos La Dos, featuring Portland's Luz Elena Mendoza, a.k.a. Y La Bamba. And the reason I like this song is that it's a little bit of bossa nova with some verve kicks. And it's also a local artist that we featured on our show. So I'm, so I'm super happy to showcase them here. And I hope you all enjoy the song. <laughs> Thank you. 
Brenda, yes, guess we just heard this song. What did we hear? You heard the song Dos La Dos uh, from local artist Francisco y Madero featuring Luz Elena Mendoza from the band Y La Bamba. Hope you all enjoyed it. Okay, so that song is pretty beautiful and it's also nice that it's kind of ties in old and new. It's funky and it's different, but it also has a flavor that kind of stays with you and can be relatable anytime. So cool. Let's keep it moving. So we have Nina Serrano on the program. She has been bringing us so much art and music and also more than anything poetry. So um, have you chosen music for people listening to that relates to poetry, Nina? Yes, Julieta, I do have a song. It's called El Carretero Urbano. It's a bilingual song by Camilo and Los Robot Ninjas, a postmodern Latin band here in the Bay Area. And it's about homelessness. It's about the people pushing the carts that we see going down the street from the grocery store, only it's got all their whole life possessions. But what I like about the song is that it has... Uh, it has hope in it, even though it's about a very sad situation. And it's they call it deconstructionism because it's kind of based on an old Cuban song and redone with modern instrumentation. Have a listen and see what you think. I see you under the freeway.
Nice. That was a great was song. Great. Nina, tell us again, who was behind that great song? Well, it was my grandson, Camilo Landau, and it's put out by Round World Records, and it's called El Carretero Urbano. It's a single, and he also put it out in a, re- a small record form for those of you who remember records mm-hmm. and have record players. Well, that's a lot of fun. So it's a fun song, but also has a pretty important message. So I'm glad we got to hear that. So this is Julieta Kusnir, and I am happy to share with you all a song that I think is important for us to keep in our consciousness when, in these moments. So I, I'd like to talk about this group because they really have been blazing a trail in terms of incorporating a really beautiful, important um, important type of music. So this is a, a po- group from Puerto Rico. A lot of times people know them as the as part of formerly part of Calle 13 because the main singer is actually was part of Calle 13. She uh, she's was a singer with that group for quite a while, but this she's branched out on her own and she's done a lot of great work. This song that I want to feature it's called Odio, and what it's about is it really talks about the 40th anniversary of uh, the Cerro Cerro Maravilla massacre in Puerto Rico, in which two pro-independence activists, 18-year-old and a 24-year-old, were killed by police officers. And then there's a big cover-up right after. And it was something that has really um, spoken to the fact that, you know, there have been such persecution of pro-independence people in Puerto Rico. And the reason that I want to highlight the song is the video of the song actually talks about the cover-up of, um, it talks about the government portrayal of the government cover-up of the massacre but it also talks about how that connects to the hurricane and you get that um you get that feeling of how the many ways that the government in puerto rico has you know not really been there and able to support people who are just trying to survive so um this song is really a beautiful tribute it's powerful because it lifts up the story of people who are involved with the armed revolutionary movement and it also i think talks about um, the many ways that the government has taken turn its back on Puerto Rico. So I love this song because of its lyrics that are a call for solidarity and actually an end to hatred, even though it's called Odio, it's actually really pushes you to um, to go against hate. Um, and it's also something that talks about the colonial situation in Puerto Rico, which is so essential. And I think such an important part of uh, when we think about the aftermath and the many people who passed, um, it's an important thing to consider. So. Um, Aile, Ile, um, they, a great voice but, and a very powerful song, and I want to share that with everyone now. Que el odio se muera de hambre, porque nadie le da de comer. Vamos juntos a romper muros, barreras y alambres. Que el odio se muera de hambre Porque nadie le da de comer Vamos juntos a romper Muros, barreras y alambres Aunque le suenen las tripas Aunque después se arrepienta Al odio no se alimenta Ni se le da de beber Para que nunca provoque 
song. I, I like it because it's historic. I think it's really important to keep the memory alive, especially progressive memory. This song is also interesting because it's it's got a little bit of a march with that exactly. boom, 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 boom. So you feel like it's about people on the move through remembering history. When I first heard this song that you picked, Julieta, I really liked the message. I liked the punching through the barriers especially now with this uh, political climate right now, we should be breaking the borders instead of having people dying and being detained. So thank you for introducing it to us, Julieta. I'm happy to. So Brenda, why don't you share with us another song that for you, you think that maybe listeners, it's not on the radar, but it should be. Sure. This song is by an artist called La Mala Rodriguez. She's been on the Latino hip hop scene for over 20 years now. And this is her first solo track in five years. It's called Titanas. Take a listen.
raped, you couldn't, uh, you, you would find yourself very much on your own. Hearing stuff, it's a shame, you should have died, you, should be, you will never be the same again, you will never recover, da 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 da, which is not really helpful. What did we just hear? We just heard Mala Rodriguez with her track, Gitanas. The reason I like this track is the message of the song. It's an ode to women and our strength and resilience. And uh, La Mala Rodriguez is half Gitana and her lyrics are mostly about strength. But also, you don't see a lot of women doing hip-hop and she's been doing it for over 20 years. So that says something. It's a pretty big deal. Looking forward to future tracks from her. I think she'll be releasing a couple more tracks in the upcoming new year. Okay, so um, Nina, do you have anything else you want to share with us? Well, yes, I do. I have a song by Mercedes Sosa that she sings with Joan Baez. Mercedes Sosa was a very important member of the Cancion Protesta movement in Latin America. She was from Argentina. And Joan Baez has certainly been a very important part of the protest music scene in the United States. So it was very exciting that they got together, and they got together on a beautiful song, my favorite of all songs, called Gracias a la Vida, Thanks to Life, that was written by Violeta Parra. Violeta Parra was a Chilean, and she is considered the mother of Cancion Protesta, the Latin American new song movement. And I I like that they made the tribute to a woman composer and their sharing of their two cultures and their their beautiful voices together. Let's take a listen.
we just hear, Nina? We just heard Gracias a la Vida by Violeta Parra, the Chilean composer and singer and artist, as sung by Mercedes Sosa of Argentina and Joan Baez, the Chicana from the United States. And it sure is beautiful. Okay, that was beautiful. Such a nice reminder that we have had such strong, beautiful women singers that not only tell us that you know we have to keep struggling but to honor and acknowledge all the beauty around us so thank you for sharing us sharing with us that song 
So we've all had a chance to share with us some music. If you all have some music that you want us to feature on the show or dig deeper and do some interviews around, you can always email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. We've been in the studio with me. It's been me, Julieta Kusnid, as well as... And Brenda Yescas. Thank you all for listening. Nina Serrano, thanks for listening. And we hope to check in with you all soon. Stay in touch. Gracias. Thank you.